That is the sound of 15,000 fans watching England, better known as the Red Roses, put Italy to the sword in the 2023 Six Nations. As kickoff approached, the sun, in timely fashion, edged its way out from behind the clouds, just enough to illuminate England fly half Holly Aitchison as she got the game underway. The stadium was packed to the rafters with men, women and children. Some were hardcore rugby fans and others were attending their very first game. All, however, were enjoying a wonderful spectacle in a packed-out stadium. And it's on these occasions where women's rugby is embraced so readily and by so many that you can see how far the game has come in recent times. Six months ago, at the World Cup final, a crowd in excess of 42,000, a world record crowd, watched on at Eden Park as the Black Ferns won their sixth title, this time on home soil. But how has women's rugby got to this point? Riding this wave of exponential growth the game is currently experiencing, it's easy to forget that this is an unnervingly recent development. Go back little more than 30 years and women's rugby barely even existed in England, let alone the dream of a women's rugby World Cup. But that was all soon to change. By 1991, Cardiff would be hosting the first ever women's rugby World Cup. And it all started when a young woman, Deborah Griffin, got an idea. Martin Thomas, author of World in Their Hands, the story of the first Women's Rugby World Cup, tells us more. Essentially, I guess it all kind of starts um, with in, in 19, the start of 1978 when uh, Deborah Griffin was, was at university and, and at, at uh, UCL um, and, and, you know, was, was watching her boyfriend play rugby and, and with a few of her friends decided to put on a game and challenge Kings uh, to a match. And from there, kind of her interest in the game grew and, you know, then she becomes, you know, quite a, a high profile member of, you know, that movement. And there were there were uh, rugby clubs, women's rugby clubs in the UK before that. But that's when it's kind of started to, to really catalyze. And through the universities, the, the WRFU is, is formed. Um, and then in 1984, uh, Deborah helped to, to set up the first women's rugby club in England at Finchley. And that's where... She met both Sue Dorrington and, and Mary Forsyth. Little did they know it, but the meeting of those three women, Deborah Griffin, Sue Dorrington and Mary Forsyth, would change the direction of the women's game. The trio made the decision to move away from Finchley a few years later, the club still not allowing them to be full-time members as women. They settled in leafy Richmond and it was there, in the bowels of a South London nightclub, that they met a fourth woman to add to their burgeoning team. So they moved to Richmond and that's when Alice Dee Cooper comes on board. She was local. She'd always wanted to play rugby, um, but never really got the chance. And then, you know, bumped into some players on a night out in Richmond. As she said, she was chasing, you know, going out, trying to find a boyfriend, but uh, found a new sport instead. Um, yeah, and from there, that, that's when they kind of met and became friends. And that friendship blossomed into what became the organising committee for the first Women's Rugby World Cup. They already had the teams on board. In 1988, there had been a European Cup in in the southeast of France, um, and the WRFU, who oversaw women's rugby in the UK at that time, had said that they would host the next tournament in 1991. Um, and in those kind of the two years before they started properly organising it, you know, basically the USA, Canada, and New Zealand, were, you know, without competition on their doorsteps, were kind of like, "Can we join?" And then it became, 
simplistically the simple answer i guess is that it became a world cup from there and but that's not to say the organization was done and dusted far from it in fact funnily enough organizing an entire world cup off the back of the work of just four women is hardly a walk in the park this was obviously the day before email the day before mobile phones so it was all done over kind of letters and faxes um so it was yeah it was it was very kind of rudimentary but which Deborah particularly had had a grounding in, in this in, in kind of university when they were first trying to get te- you know a team together and trying to find opposition they would she would often you know just phone up at a universities and, and see if they had women playing rugby so she was used to kind of doing this kind of legwork to try and find you know opposition to play. The next task was to contact the leaders of the men's game the International Rugby Football Board or the IRFB to alert them of their plans. Being independent, they didn't need their permission per se, but approval from the men's game would mean a less arduous search for sponsorship and funding. However, on the basis that they needed to safeguard the interests of their own men's Rugby World Cup that same year, little support was given. This lack of support from the IRFB must not be misunderstood. They were not in opposition to women playing rugby on principle. However, what it did show was a microcosm of the landscape in which these women were forced to operate. I guess they they were going into a space where a lot of people didn't want them to be. Um, Even the people that were were helpful, like, you know, Finchley, for example, letting them, um, allowing, you know, the first female club in in England to, to, to be based there, they would, you know, they were very much, you know, they would get the worst pitches to train on they would get the worst pitches to play on. They weren't allowed to play on the first team pitch. They would have to come in on a Sunday. They would have to clean the changing rooms before they could use them. They would have to wash up, you know, the bar equipment from the night before, before they could use it. You know, it, it's, it's, I think it's hard to, to kind of comprehend because it, it seems so recently. But um, I think there's another quote I used in the book that, that said that, you know, the, the, the rugby club of the late 80s, early 90s was kind of the last bastion of chauvinism um, in kind of the UK and Ireland and I think that kind of sums it up um, even when there wasn't over opposition to, to what these women were doing there was you know quiet scepticism and a lot of the time they just weren't made to feel welcome you know once clubs saw what they were doing and people went along and watched the games obviously you know they, they were very good at changing perceptions and you know getting people on side but they really had to um you know, they really came up against, you know, the attitudes they came up against were, you know, were, were, not, were not nice, to put it that way, I guess. You know, that was another remarkable thing about these women, that they, there were obstacles and challenges in their way, but, you know, they thought nothing about putting in the legwork, essentially, to, to overcome them. And, you know, no obstacle was, was too great to, to certainly not, you know, trying to steal your, your office fax, not steal your office fax stream, but, you know, uh, covertly fax um, women's unions across the world from, from your work fax machine was definitely not t- too much for them to take on. There was at the time an unavoidable prevailing association between rugby and masculinity, a game invented and played on the fields of rugby school. It was at the time tolerated by the headmaster rather than encouraged, an outlet to stave the boys off the Christian evils of homosexuality and masturbation. As such, it was deemed that women, in light of their reproductive capacities, were somehow constitutionally unfit 
to play such a violent game. So the fact that both Deborah and Mary gave birth just before the tournament started, in fact, Mary gave birth just seven days before the tournament started, was hugely symbolic. The kind of science manuals that have been produced in you know the Victorian times and the early 20th century, which essentially said that you know women shouldn't play you know physical contact team sports because they might you know they don't know what effect that will have on their reproductive organs, which seems you know a, a, you know it seems you, you can't you can always can't you know believe it today, but these sort of attitudes were kind of informing you know policy on you know what sports women were allowed to play right up until you know fairly recently so it's yeah it's that you're right it was really symbolic that that they not only put on this tournament in the face of such kind of chauvinism and you know stuck two fingers up to the establishment but that Deborah and and Mary both gave birth in in the lead up is yeah as you say it's, it's you know very symbolic. They were short on support, short on recognition, short on money and short of respect. But these women were determined to plough on regardless. On a shoestring budget and with a number of compromises, they were determined to get the tournament on. I mean, what, what is most impressive is just how kind of, considering this was basically four women doing it off their own back, they didn't, apart from maternity leave, they didn't have any you know time off really to dedicate to this. They were doing this very much you know, in the mornings and evenings and weekends, but it was incredibly professional. They'd, you know, they'd, it was done over, you know, eight, nine days in in, in the April uh, Easter holidays so that they had accommodation so that they could get cheap accommodation from universities. They had a, a civic reception opening ceremony to open it where kind of teams marched into, a, you know, the, the, the county hall and with flags and in team track suits and stuff. Um, they had, you know, they, they managed to get eventually kind of buy-in from enough um, men's clubs in, in the area um, to, to stage the games at, you know, at, at good elite level, you know, clubs. Although it's some of them that were sort of council-owned that, that because they had a men's game on the same day, they weren't enough changing rooms for the women. So, for example, in Pontypool, I think it was, they had to change in the leisure centre next door. Um, in Ely, they had to change at a school, which was kind of over the road. Uh, from the memorial ground um so even then there the, you know there were challenges but i mean it, yeah it was r- remarkable and, and just from speaking to people and i even spoke to someone since uh for a, for a different piece uh recently that, that played in the 901 world cup and you just get a sense that that you know there was just so much enjoyment from from everybody kind of involved from the the participants the players you know, the ball boys, the ball girls, the people at the clubs who watched the games, um, the people who hosted the games. It just seemed to be, you know, everybody had a, a really good time. To quote David Hans from The Times, it was a tournament run for players by players who were prepared to risk their own money to bring their particular dream to fruition. And in that sense, has taken rugby back to its original and purest roots. And so on the 6th of April, 1991, the 12-team tournament kicked off. Consisting of four pools of three teams, sides from all over the world had come to attend. Pool 1 consisted of New Zealand, Canada and Wales. Pool 2, France, Sweden and Japan. Pool 3, United States, Netherlands and the Soviet Union. And finally in Pool 4 were England, Spain and Italy. Some of those teams, including New Zealand, the Netherlands, the USA and England, had played their fair share of rugby 
by that point. However, there were some teams that attended who'd not got a lot of rugby under their belts. The least experienced up against the might of the USA in their pool were Japan. Yeah, Japan had never um, played any test matches before this and the year before had gone to Rugby Fest uh, in New Zealand and only sent teams for the club competition. So they, yeah, they were really inexperienced at this level and obviously, you know, that that was not, I don't want to say found out, but that, that was apparent um, in the result. Japan suffered two heavy losses against France and Sweden in the pool, but their participation was all that truly mattered. And despite their interesting story, somehow they weren't the most interesting of all the teams. In fact, it was the Soviet Union who also failed to score a single point in the whole tournament that provided the most exciting and most interesting storylines. They arrived, uh, they'd, they'd done a similar thing. Um, obviously, it was, it was amazing, really, that they were able to get out of, out of the Soviet Union at that, at that time. And they'd gone to New Zealand for the Rugby Fest the year before. Um, and then had, they'd had similar problems with, with money and, and, and food and stuff like that. So I think it was, there was some expectation that, that, that they would do that again. I don't think people realised just how little money um, they would arrive with. Um, and yeah, they, they kind of um, alerted the customs, office, customs officers to their plans um, when they arrived. They arrived in two separate groups, um, so they didn't arrive all as one squad, but I think the coaches had arrived first. Um, and when they got to Cardiff, they kind of gave several interviews with um, daily newspapers, which uh, in which they told them their plans to kind of sell caviar and vodka and cham- um, Russian champagne to fund their, their uh, time in the, in South Wales, which obviously, you know, on reading that, customers officials weren't best pleased. And uh, I think Deborah Griffin got a phone call very early on the Monday morning to say, could you get to uh, Cardiff Institute? quickly because we've got you know two customs officials have turned up um, but fortunately uh, through a mixture of Deborah and Alice's uh, persuasion but I think mainly because the Russians at least claimed they couldn't speak English uh, the customs officials left uh, fairly happy that they weren't going to contravene any any laws um, and they were allowed to keep all their, their wares and I don't think they they actually sold them in public but I know they uh, they sold stuff at games because couple of the American players and New Zealand players and England players have still got um, various mementos from um, Russian dolls, Soviet number plates. Uh, I was actually, I got a, a message on Twitter from someone who was a ball boy at one of the games in Clan Aaron. And he said he had a, he had for years, he had a, a Soviet, one of the Soviet shirts as well. So I think they did a, they did a roaring trade at the games, but I don't think they, I'm not sure they chance their arms out, out on the streets. It's understandable if you're, you know, struggling for, for food and money that, you know, your thoughts might not be on training or, or on the match. But um, again, yeah, they, they particularly, the, the Soviets particularly obviously came up against the USA, who were by far, the, the I would say, the best team um, at that time. And not only the best team, but just the best athletes as well um, for lots of, lots of reasons. Um, so I think that was... That result in particular was obviously that possibly the, the fittest team coming up against the least fit team, um, and yeah, it was it was it was shown in the scoreline. The Americans who went on to win the entire tournament were imperious throughout. They conceded just six points in the entire tournament, which came in the form of a penalty try in the final against England. Yeah, they were they were definitely I'd say probably the most 
not most experienced in terms of international competition, but because of not to go too deep into it, but because of Title IX and you know the opportunities that women had had in sport, and a lot of colleges in America had to kind of offset American football programs, and a good way to do that was to fund a um, a women's rugby team, and we're not talking huge funds, but you know, travel to games and um, stuff like that. So they'd, they'd, there was decent competition in America, and they'd played lots of games. Um, they'd probably had the biggest outside of France. Maybe they'd probably been going for the longest, um, and they just had really good athletes. I mean, the two starting second rows in the final, the lots from Hell, um, Tam Breckenridge and Tara Flanagan. Sorry. They were both um, college basketball players, uh, and and you know that was a theme that continued. You know, they had you know you had people that had, that had played sport to kind of a varsity level, but had then either maybe weren't quite good enough to take that next step, or didn't want to, or couldn't devote the time, or there weren't the opportunities because obviously there aren't as many opportunities in women's sports. So had then found rugby, and so they had this kind of collection of athletes essentially. But they were also brilliant rugby players, players like Kathy Flores, Candy Orsini, who was a stunt woman uh, professionally. Um, then you had like uh, Krista McFarren, who was a, a brilliant winger, Patty Jervy, who's now in the World Rugby Hall of Fame. You just had lots and lots of brilliant athletes, but they were also brilliant rugby players. And because of their background, I think I think England had equally good players. Players like Karen Armand was probably the best player in the world at the time. Obviously, Carol Isherwood is, you know, a legend of the game. Jill Burns. Um, they had brilliant players as well, Emma Mitchell. But I think the way that the American team had, you know, where their background and, and how they had become sportswomen and how they had gelled as a team and the way that they played just meant they were a bit more um, streetwise and a bit more, um, mm-hmm. you know, when things didn't go to plan A, they had ways of getting out of trouble. And I think that that is basically from speaking to England players that, is, was the difference in the final. You know, England had a very pragmatic plan, maybe got a bit uh, overawed by the occasion. Um, the plan A wasn't working. They didn't really have a plan B to go to, whereas not to, you know, the US, I don't want to say the USA were like the Harlem Globetrotters, but they, mm. their backs particularly, they could do anything with, with any, with you know, with if they had ball in hand, they could do anything. And I think there was one try which came from a, a quick line out which was just something that the England players had never seen, you know, pretty much never faced. Just, you know, the American players just thought out, thought that bit more outside the box, I think. Um, as was shown by 94 and onwards, once, um, you know, once England's fitness levels and other things had caught up maybe with the Americans, England's, England maybe had the better rugby players. Um, but in that instance, yeah, the USA just had, I think they just had something that, that England had maybe never come up against before. Just over 32 years on from the 1991 final, and England will host France in the first standalone women's international at Twickenham. A world record number of tickets have already been sold, and that number is sure to rise between now and kickoff. And that achievement can be traced right back to Mary Forsyth, Sue Dorrington, Alice Cooper, and Deborah Griffin. Without them in 91, you know, you can't it's hard to say when, if ever, something like this would have been done. Um, and it definitely, that was definitely the success of it. It was kind of a, at a time when the men's game was kind of pulling its hair out over professionalism and apartheid and various different things. It was kind of this um, pure, I guess, just 
you know, very amateur in the best sense of the word, kind of just done for the love of the sport and nothing was going to stop them. You know, it didn't matter what they had to do to get it over the line. You know, they could tell all the teams three months before it started that that they'd have to, you know, pay extra money and none of the teams pulled out. They all wanted to be there. It meant so much to these teams just to be able to to play other national teams. As you said previously, some of these teams hadn't played international rugby before. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was just, that, I guess that's the, the best thing, you know, that's the thing that it, 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 it kick-started everything that's come since. Um, and yeah, it was just a, I guess it was a, a, a celebration of, of rugby.